Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. We're going to look into the Word of God this morning, and the title of the message is Renewal Under King Josiah. Renewal Under King Josiah. And the text this morning comes out of 2 Chronicles 34, verses 1 to 33. That's a lot of verses, I'm not going to read all of them because that would eat up most of my time, and I've already been told I go kind of long. So, um, so we're just going to kind of plug away. I'm going to interact with different parts of it. But, you know, it's, mid, it's mid-November in Chicago, and though we've had a couple really warm days lately, you know that winter's coming, don't you? That picture was shot a couple winters ago from the back deck of my house, and I, I'm one of those crazy people who doesn't want to run away to California. I love winter in Chicago. For as long as my aging body can handle it, I want to live here and experience the bitter cold and the snow and the shoveling and all that because it makes me feel alive. If it's always comfortable, always nice, after a while, everything starts to become the same. I need it to be frigid and cold and all that. So I love winter and I'm glad it's coming. Just from the looks in the room, not all of you agree with me. Um, May the Lord grant you strength to have a different attitude since you live here and have to go through it anyway. But you know, towards the end of winter, do you know how you start to feel, like, even people like me who love winter, towards the end of it, something happens, and you get a little like, been there, done that, and winter gets stale, and, and you know what it is for me? The air in my house gets really stale. You know that feeling where the snow is gone, the, the really, really cold weather is gone, but still you don't want to open the windows or all that. And so the air gets really dank and musty and, and you feel like you've been breathing the same air for like three months. Turning on the, the, the heater doesn't help. And then one day in the spring, what happens? It gets just warm enough that you can crack open the windows for the first time of the year. Don't you love that day? And you feel that breeze kind of flowing through and stuff is fluttering on the walls. And I love that feeling of a fresh breeze blowing through my house. It's a feeling of renewal, refreshing. And I think that's why somehow we call it spring cleaning because when that renewal comes, we are in the mood to also purge a lot of the other stale, unused junk in our lives to clean house in a way and get a new beginning to our lives. The grass and the trees are growing and and, and Flowers are blooming, and we love spring because it's a time when old things get turned over and become new. Are you with me so far? That's why I like spring. I love winter, but I wouldn't want to live in Alaska because I also need spring and the renewal it brings. And I wonder if for some of us, our spiritual lives don't feel a little bit today like the stale air in your house at the end of winter. I mean, some of you might be coming to church trying to read your Bibles in the mornings, listening to um, K-Love, or if you're more old school, WMBI. And the honest truth is you're trying all this stuff, but somewhere along the way you lost it. You know what I'm talking about? It's starting to feel, even like right now, okay, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, sometimes the body language, the facial expression is like, hurry up, man. I'm going to go watch the Bears game. You've lost some of that hunger, that zeal. God doesn't move you the way he once did. And, and I wonder if you feel like in your soul right now, you could stand a little opening of the windows and a fresh breeze blowing through. 
Am I the only one who feels like that? Some of you have to be in that situation. Uh, we're going to look at this passage to learn some of the things from this, the story of Josiah that remind us how renewal in the soul sometimes comes about in people's lives. And the first thing I want to point out to you from this text is that sometimes the young will lead us. Sometimes the young will lead us. I'm trying to put these big numbers on the corner in case you're taking notes because sometimes people look at my slides and they go, I have no idea when you're moving on to another point. And if you're kind of uptight about that stuff, that's my way of serving the more anal retentive folks among us. All right, so sometimes young will lead us. Look what it says right off in the beginning of this passage. Make note of this, especially if you're one of the young people in our group. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. When Josiah became king over the southern kingdom of Judah, do you realize he was the ruler of an entire nation at the age of eight? He was a boy king. Reminds us of another famous boy king. You guys know about Tutankhamun. He became king when he was nine years old, and just like Josiah, but more famously so, he also instituted very bold religious reforms in Egypt. So King Tut, if you guys don't know who Tutankhamun is, that's King Tut. Hopefully you recognize the face. King Tut and Josiah both, as young boy kings, were notable in history because they, as very young leaders, turned a lot of things upside down in their lands. It says that when he was just eight years old, he began to seek after the Lord, his God. And you know, one thing I've noticed about little kids is they normally don't seek after God all by themselves. Now the truth is, kids have a much higher capacity to believe in things than we cynical, old, grumpy people do. You know, like, like we've learned how not to believe. Kids haven't learned that yet. They're still so ready to believe in things. But a lot of the times, they learn to believe all kinds of goofy and wrong things. They learn to believe things like, life should always be fun. They learn to believe things like, if I'm not smiling and laughing, then everything is bad. They learn to believe things like, everyone should be nice to me because I'm the center of the universe. Or, being wealthy and comfortable is the most important thing in the world. Or, if you're Asian, getting to Harvard is the greatest thing that could happen to a human being. Do you see that children are ready to believe so many things, but sadly they're so often guided into believing all the wrong things. Believing that things are important that aren't nearly as important as we make them out to be. I believe that Josiah began to seek the Lord largely because of the influences of adults around him. And it's interesting that his mother is mentioned in in his story, and it's certainly that his dad was not the good influence, because the Bible says about his dad, King Amon, or Amon, that his dad did evil in the eyes of the Lord. His dad was one of those really bad kings uh, of Israel, of Judah. And so it certainly did not come from his dad, but chances are that his mother was a godly woman. And thank God that sometimes when dads lose their way, godly moms step in. Because without a guide, so often children will simply walk in the direction that every other uninformed, unthinking person is walking. 
they take the path of least resistance, whatever is easiest, whatever is most fun, that's what they'll think is important. And without someone stepping into the lives to say, you know, I know you want to do that, but that is not good for you. Thank God for adults who believe in and love children enough to guide them toward what is right and what is good. You know, one thing I learned from Josiah's story starting at such a young age is that we should never underestimate the capacity of young people to have faith and to believe. I was doing a little research because I had heard something years ago at the Billy Graham um, School of Evangelism, and George Barna, who is sort of the, the, um, the statistician for the kingdom of God, made these observations. After interviewing a bunch of Christians in America, he noted that 64% of American Christians accepted Christ before their 18th birthday, and 43% of American Christians do so before the age of 13. That's with an estimated 100 million Americans who self-identify as born-again Christians. That's a startling number. And yet what happens a lot of times in church is that the children's ministry and the youth ministry are just a, an afterthought. Oh, let's, let's get somebody who's good with kids who'll make them have fun and, and make some styrofoam cup crafts and they'll come showing us all the stuff that's going to end up in the recycle bin next week. And you know, like that's what we think kids' ministry is. What we don't realize is the most significant spiritual decisions in America are made in people's lives when they're still very young. And why is that, do you suppose? I think partly it's because children don't have enough pain, failure, hypocrisy yet to have learned to be cynical. I think a lot of kids still believe that the world can be a better place. That things that trustworthy people tell them are true because that's the way it should be. We're the ones who are broken and messed up if we're adults because we've forgotten, we've unlearned how to have faith and how to believe in things. If Josiah as a young boy king is learning to seek after the Lord at that age, how important is it for us to invest in the lives of young people? Here's another verse here. For in the eighth year of his reign, how, how old is he, class? Eight plus eight, right? Well, he's 16 years old while he was yet a boy. Now, if you know any 16-year-olds, they don't like being called boys. They're young men. But let's be honest, they're still boys, okay? For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy of 16, he began to seek the God of David, his father. All right? And listen, and in the twelfth year, which would make him how old? carry the two. 20, right. Judah, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. Here's what we're learning from this. That Josiah, when he was very young, as he became aware of God and got to know God, started being mobilized into action. He began to do something ambitious and marvelous for God because he realized, as I get to know this God and I look at the world I live in, there's a mismatch. God is good and God is just and God is loving and He's worthy to be known. But when I look at our world, there's so many things about it that just aren't right and I want to fix them. This young man, with all his youthful idealism, happened to be the king of his own nation, so he had some firepower to do that. But that's, it wasn't just the fact that he was king. I think the key thing is that he was young. Young enough to still have that idealism that says things can change. 
People can change. The world can change. And if you're over 18, if you're over 20 or 30, you might really, that might be a fading memory for us that things really can change and get better and that the efforts of even one person can make a tremendous difference in the way the world unfolds around us. I love the idealism of youth. I was just joking around in my, telling a story in my, um, in my, uh, my community group this past week that when I was a youth pastor in Philadelphia, I taught the, the sophomore boys Sunday school class, 15-year-old boys. And I remember asking, what do you want to do when you get out of college? Because most of these boys were headed for university. And they said stuff like, oh, that's easy. I'm going to pretty much get a job right out of college making like 100000 a year. Uh, I don't want too hard of a job, so just you know, like maybe about a hundred grand, and then I'm going to save some of that money up, and I'm going to start my own business and invent something cool, and then I'll probably retire at like 30, really old, like at 30, um, and I'll have like a couple million bucks, and then I don't know what I'll do. Maybe I'll teach high school or something good like that with my life. And I'm hearing these young boys talk like just like the smoking drugs. Like what? Did you say a hundred thousand? You'll settle for a hundred thousand right out of college? But you know what I love about that, though? They're too dumb to know that that can't be done, and you know what? Some of them are going to actually do it because they believe things. They still have an idealism that is so full of power. I think some of the most powerful and world-changing leaders in this pla- on this planet right now are the young leaders, not the old, crusty, set-in-our-way leaders like me. That's why we invest heavily in interns at our church. That's why we want our youth ministry to be front and center because young people are going to change this planet. The rest of us will just watch it and cluck our tongues and uh, we'll see if that works. We'll doubt what they're going to push. Don't ever forget that sometimes it's the young people who will lead us. And when you think about what he did, it says, and in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, this is one of those times when it's a good idea to have a map while you read your Bible. Okay? In, all, in, in the ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the ashram and the images of, to, into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Now, because you might not have had a map or are not aware of the geography, I'm going to do you a favor and show you. Okay? This is the map of the region. That's Jerusalem's starting point. And it says he went to Manasseh, and then he went to Ephraim, and Simeon, and Naphtali. That's the boundaries of how far he went on this little mission trip of idol destruction. Okay? That pretty much is a way of saying he covered the entire land. And when I look at that, I love this. It shows the scope of holy ambition When a young person sets out to do something, they don't start out by asking, what does the budget allow? How much energy do I have? Oh, that seems like an awful lot of stopovers, and I don't like flying. (laughs) You know how old people are? We stink. We're defeated before we start half the stuff in life because we're not good at enduring or dreaming or vision casting, but the young are not limited by that because they don't know how bad flying is yet. They're excited just to be on an airplane. They'll say, why not just conquer the whole planet for Jesus? How about that? You, you know, focus on the family, Campus Crusade for Christ Navigators. All of these great global ministries were born while these leaders were very young and didn't know that they couldn't reach the whole world for Jesus. Cynical old people, we don't start great things. I'm sorry. 
We've got to invest in the young who really believe that holy ambition will be justified by their faith. His great-grandfather Hezekiah also led a great spiritual reform in Israel, but young Josiah far outdid his great-grandpappy. He did an amazing thing. So what am I saying? One of the ways a spiritual revival or renewal comes about is when the young are empowered, but also when the old recapture some of what we have lost as we've aged. Recapturing some of that energy, that idealism, the capacity to believe what our eyes are telling us is too late to believe in. And I hope some of us, by God's grace, will regain some of what has leaked out over the years. Here's another thing I see in the story, that idols must be smashed into dust. Idols must be smashed into dust. Let's just review this passage, and I've tried to put keywords in red so that if you're sleepy, you won't miss it. For in the eighth year, I don't know if that's really red. What is it? Is that red? For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of, his, of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to, I love this word, purge. Have any of you guys done that cayenne pepper and lemon juice purge thing? And had that awful thing end up in your potty? Any of you guys done that? Well, there's something about purging, getting all the gunk just out. You don't even care if you leave it on the curb and someone takes it or it gets thrown. No garage sales. You just want it out. I don't care where it goes, just not here. Out. That's a purge. Okay? And I love the idea of a purge. And he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram and the carved and the metal images. And I'll just read with some dramatic emphasis for you. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the ashram and the carved and the metal images. And he made dust of them. And he scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Skipping ahead of a verse. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the ashram and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. What I love about this is the swift, decisive, unambiguous way in which he dealt with the idols in the land. These were abominations and offenses to God because it's like this. I'm married. Imagine if I had pictures of girls in bikinis all over my house. I had little, little pendants made. with a, You open up the lock and there's a picture of another woman's face. Well, how do you think my wife would feel about that, guys? What do you think? Any married men in the room have a guess as to how your wife might feel about pin-up posters and framed photos of all these other girls in your home? That isn't cool, in case you're too dumb to know that. Okay, you're gonna, you'll be alone a long time if that's a good idea. That is not cool at all. It's a daily offense to the person who's supposed to have your exclusive love and devotion. They're heartbreaking because they remind you that you don't really have the heart of the person who you long to have. And Josiah understood this and he realized if we don't rid the land, purge it of these idols, we will never experience God the way we're supposed to. But here's what I appreciate about it. When it says he ground them into dust, you know how when you were a little kid and somebody said, the bully said to you in school, I'm going to pulverize you. 
You don't hear that word very much anymore. It's rooted in the Latin word pulver, which means powder. Literally, when someone's going to pulverize you, they're going to turn you back into the dust you came from. You'll just be a pile of powder. I love that word. That's what he did to the idols. He didn't hide them under a bushel, no. He didn't put them under his bed or hide them in the attic because that's the way you've got to deal with an idol. There's something insidious about idols that when you just try to postpone them, hide them, stow them away in the attic, you know what happens. A couple weeks go by and you're pretty good, but after a while you start whining and longing and pining for those things and you sneak back up to the attic, don't you? And you go, I'm not going to take you back down all the way, but I'm just going to look at you and touch you a little bit and just kind of tease it. And and that's what we do with idols. If they're not decisively destroyed, they linger and they persist in our lives. They continue to do damage even while we fool ourselves. You know, some 650 years later, Jesus would give us a very similar teaching about swift and decisive action. He would say, if your right eye causes you to sin, right? how many times have I said this? Don't wear an eye patch. He said, pluck it out! Throw it away! That's radical, in case you missed it. That's crazy talk. A religious leader saying stuff like, for it is better that you lose one of your, your members' body parts than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, don't start using the left. Cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that you learn to be an ambidextrous sinner. Do you understand? That's not what the Bible says, but you get the point, right? When you have something causing you to stumble, you don't flirt with it and play games with it and coddle it. You get rid of it decisively. The same thing with a tumor. How many of you, if your doctor said you've got a tumor, you would say, um, could you paint it a different color? Maybe make it emanate a grape scent or something? You would say, cut it out of me. Not in pieces and bits. Get it all out. I want it gone from my body because that's not something that is good for me to keep around. When we have idols in our lives, that's the way they need to be dealt with or there will always be a blockage of the soul between us and God. Now, in Josiah's day, the idols were kind of easy to spot. They were giant statues or totem poles like you see at Disney World or you know, things like that or in the old cartoons and Cowboys and Indians movies. It's not that hard to find those idols because they're publicly displayed. You'd have to almost be trying not to find them. The idols today are not so easy to spot, are they? They're just as common. They're everywhere but they're kind of invisible. So what is an idol? That's one of the questions we've got to wrestle with. I think an idol, and don't get me wrong, an idol is something that should be good. You know, an idol is not like crack addiction because that's just sin. It's addiction. It's bad. It'll never be redemptive or good ever. But an idol is something which is a gift from God, something good, which then gets perverted, becomes something other than what it was meant to be. A good thing gone bad. Do you get that? Something that starts to take on more importance or priority than anything else in your life. It starts to play the role that God should in your life. It does things for you that God wants to do for you. And it demands things from you which you would only normally devote to God. In other words, an idol is something that you once owned that now begins to own you. Simply put, 
That's what an, uh, uh, an idol is. Another way to talk about the harmful effects of idols is this. It feeds you in a way that's not good for you, nutritious, but it fills you and it leaves you less hungry for the best things in life. That's one of the, the worst parts, in my opinion, of what an idol does, is it robs you of the appetite for the best things in the world. It's like gorging yourself mid-afternoon on White Castle and then going out to dinner with your wife at a gourmet restaurant and you just are not hungry. And there's this giant porterhouse cooked medium rare sitting in front of you like, darn, I wish I hadn't eaten 12 sliders a couple hours ago because there's no doubt in my mind this food is better. I just don't want to eat it right now because my belly, just like my soul, is full of something else. I think ultimately an idol causes us to slip away from God because it's our drug of choice and we're medicating our hunger with something else. Now I'm saying all this because I want to share a testimony with you. I confronted an idol of my own this past week. And it's one of the occupational hazards of pastoring and preaching that when you've got a sermon you've got to tell to others, it often has to club you over the head first. I got rid of an idol in my life this past week, and I feel silly saying it, and you'll think I'm even dumber when, you, when the story unfolds. But I, I'm not embarrassed to say, this is one of the hardest decisions I have made in my adult life. I mean, looking back on it, it's pitiful that I got to a point where I could say it. But I'm just being real and honest with you. You guys know that I really like this game. Right? Some of you kind of know, some of you really know that I really like this game. And uh, it just came out on like Tuesday, I think. Tuesday or Wednesday. I got it the day it came out. I played with it all of three days a lot. <laughs> but then Friday morning, I had a powerful conversation, powerful in many senses, with my wife Jeannie. Um, and thank God for her in my life. She was the voice of God for me that morning. So glad that she had the courage to confront me on certain things because I began to understand something in that conversation that I was becoming blind to. Let me tell you something. This is my home entertainment system, okay? It's the centerpiece of my house. More important than the kitchen table. This is my Xbox 360 right there. This past week, my dad donated these speakers to me, very nice speakers, which he was just going to get rid of, and I said, I'll take them. And then for the first time, I hooked up my Xbox 360 to those speakers. <laughs> Every gunshot, padoom, it was just unbelievable. I could feel it in my jawbone when I shot. And this is a shot, a screenshot of the game itself. I mean, that's, a, that's the game right there. That's not a movie. That's the game. Here's what I learned, though. That this game was becoming, for me, way more than a game. If I'm really honest with you, I could say that in all of my day, nothing excited me more than the moment I hit that big circular button, the little green ring came on, and my jaws would clench with the anticipation. I'd be like, hurry up and boot up. I was like, like the head going, come on, come on. 
That's how I felt. I couldn't wait to get online. And once I was online playing, I was in another world, man. A virtual world where I was shooting strangers and making friends with these people. And I was playing this game with soldiers in Iraq. It's just crazy. And I realized what I was doing. That game, the biggest issue was not just the time. I was spending some days like two, three hours playing this game. Judge me if you want to, but you got your own junk, so I feel safe saying this, okay? I was playing this, and part of the problem is the hours I had to use. I had to do it when the shame and the scorn of my family wasn't all on me. So I started at midnight when I had the house to myself, and it would be 2.30 in the morning when I finally go, I have this weird sensation, I think it's sleepiness, and I would retire for the night. Not the greatest lifestyle for a pastor. Would you agree with that? I know some of you are totally judging me. I don't care. Because your stuff is probably bad too, isn't it? I mean, 2.30 in the morning, I'm like, something's not right here. But I'm so driven to do this. I need this in this powerful way. And I began to understand what it was. It was my drug of choice because my work, like many of you, is filled with stress. Very few people call me with good news. I am dealing with other people's issues all day long, bearing burdens, and I realized I needed a place to take all of that that was raining down on me because I don't have a pastor. I don't know who I go to, and I just felt the weight of it. I said, I need to medicate this. And I realized I have someone up there, but I was going to this every day, and I was shooting up and just getting lost. And you know what it did to me, the net effect? was that when I really needed to get before God, I was already too tired to pray or seek Him. Something was like junk food. I was satisfied in a way that wasn't real, but was good enough for the moment. My standards were going way down for when I felt full. This t-shirt right here was given to me by some friends at Harvest disrespectful hypocrites who uh, thought this would be funny. Just kidding. I love you guys. They're the other guys who are online quite often. And uh, this is what you get on Xbox when you make an achievement in the game. It says, achievement unlocked, left the house. (laughs) That's their subtle way of saying, Pastor Dave, we see you online a lot. And I'm wearing this as my confession that they were right. They were right. They could have found a more humble way of saying it. God will see to it that justice is done. But they were right. And so I realized in preparing the sermon that I can't play games with this, literally. I can't put it in the attic, ask my wife to give me time limits, because this is such a central drug for me that I cannot be trusted to manage it in my current state. It it had become an idol. I don't know how else to explain. I wrestled with God all week trying to find loopholes. Is it really an idol? Let me apply every test I know. And each time the test came back, positive, positive, positive. This is your idol, man. And listen, ladies, if your husband or or boyfriend has an Xbox, don't go and say, see, you're supposed to get rid of it. It may not be his thing, okay? I mean, some of you ladies are addicted to shoes. That might be your thing. I don't know. Just throwing something out there. I'm not saying Xbox is wrong. A lot of guys handle it very well. I just don't. I don't. And so I made a very, very 
difficult decision, I sold all of my games. Starting with the one most precious to me, a game I had waited for for six months with breathless anticipation, played for three days, achievements left to be unlocked, maps left to be seen and experienced. And last night, this transferred over to somebody I hope will handle it better than I did. I didn't want to punish my kids, so the Xbox is still there for their Guitar Hero weekends only. I have zero desire to play Guitar Hero. Negative zero, okay? <laughs> is that you know, mathematically feasible? Negative zero. But everything that drew me to that machine is, is gone now. It's gone. Nothing left. And I realized that as I did that, as hard as that was, and some of you just don't understand, especially I think some of you ladies are like, what is wrong with this man? But some of you, I think, fully understand what this cost me. I hope you do. And I couldn't lead here with integrity if I didn't deal with my own idol in the swift, decisive manner that I'm going to preach to you about. <clears throat> I, st- I missed the game, man. <laughs> I really miss it. But I also feel free. I don't know how to describe it, but I feel like there's room now for God. And I want to just really challenge you to think about that in your own lives. If you have an idol, it's got to be exposed and shattered to dust because it is standing in the way of your best life with God. Let me just use the remaining time to give you one last thing that comes out of the story that I think is so important. That if renewal is to come, God's word must once again become central. You know, Josiah didn't just purge the land of idols. He began remodeling the temple. He was doing a building project at church. And as they were cleaning out the temple treasury, one of the priests rooting around for more gold said, Hey, what's this? And he found, think about this. The priest accidentally found the Bible in the church and didn't know what it was. He's like, hey, what's this? Hmm, it says Moses on Hey, this might be important. So he takes it and brings it to the scribe who brings it to the king and they read it out loud and when the king hears it, he goes, what on earth is going on with us? How could we have gone this long without the book, the voice of the word of God in our lives? makes you wonder what the priests were drawing from when they didn't have the Bible before or what they were building this religious system on. I could understand why the scroll of Moses would be put away in a treasury vault because it's valuable. But let me tell you that a treasure locked away and ignored is no treasure at all. Some of you have a square little outline on the back ledge of your car where your Bible sits every Sunday and the sun has discolored the entire back ledge except where your Bible rests. In fact, the funny thing is, you know where to put your Bible because the outline is already marked out for you. It's a Sunday-only book for so many of us. And where the Word of God is missing from a person's life, spiritual decay is not far behind. You know... As this book was being read to King Josiah, who was coming to know God, he tore his clothes. That's the illustration Heath is trying to portray here. He tore his clothes. That's not something we do today, thank goodness. 
right? When we're feeling bad, we don't just rip our clothes. But why is he doing that? He is overcome with anguish. And it sounds, based on his reaction and what was read, that, that at least what the scribe was reading at that moment was the latter portion of the book of Deuteronomy. And in that book is a prophecy for all those who will settle in the promised land, the generations to come, that if they would honor the covenant they'd made with God, if they would honor the Lord, blessing upon blessing would come to them. But if they drifted from God and went their own ways, curses would fall upon them. These were words meant to guide them into the best possible life with God. And it was buried in a vault for a generation. And the reason Josiah was so upset was that as he heard it, he realized how much blessing they'd missed out on and how much devastation was headed their way because of the neglect of God's Word. You know, so often I meet with people who find themselves in a spiritual weird place, a funk. You know what I mean? And they go, how do I get it back? I, don't, I just don't want to. When I turn on moody radio, I just want to punch the radio. I just... You know what I mean? I just, I'm not in a good mood with God. We're drifting apart. And they ask me, what should I do? And one of my first diagnostic questions is always this. Hey, are you spending some quality time just alone with God? Reading the Bible, talking to Him in prayer, just resting in His presence. Are you doing it? And that question almost always produces an, a response of irritation. I know you was going to say that. That's a generic pastor line, isn't it? And it produces irritation because they came for a magic bullet and I'm just giving them the Word of God. But here it is. It is a spiritual law that is inviolable. That the Word of God is food for the soul. And when it is neglected, the soul becomes malnourished and begins to decay. And no other substitute will feed that soul. You know, I have a turtle. And he has to eat certain kinds of things. If I threw milk duds into his tank day after day, because I like them, I promise you I have a dead turtle and a very disgusting tank within a couple months. Do you realize that there are certain things only that will feed other things? Right? You, can't feed, you can't feed a dog candy bars. You don't feed a plant Coca-Cola, and you don't feed a soul television, vacations, and sexual dalliances, and think that the satisfaction those things bring are actually nourishing the deepest part of who you are. You are starving in your soul without God's Word. And that explains why you feel so empty when you draw into the well and want to drink. There's nothing there. The Word of God always accompanies spiritual renewal. Because that's the only way we know what God says. And here's the important thing to remember. The point is not to become addicted to a book, but to the one who wrote it. The point has always been that the God behind the book is why we go to the book in the first place. That's why Jesus many years later would say, I am the bread of life. The prophet Isaiah, who was ministering around this time, also said this, Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and, listen, your soul will delight 
in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. Do you know that this is a law of the spiritual life? That without God's word, you are like that emaciated child in all those late night infomercials. For the price of a cup of coffee, you could save this child's life. And you take pity on that child's physical body, but our soul may look far worse than that. And we're trying to uphold the burdens of this complex, difficult world, starving to death in the place that is deepest in us. How is that possible that we think that could succeed? My invitation to you, if you need a fresh wind, is to go back to the most obvious source of nourishment for the soul. Let the Word of God become central again. And as you go to that Word, find the God who speaks that Word. That's the real bread for our soul. The Bible, if I can put it this way, is soul food. So as we wrap up, I wonder if I could just invite you again to think about this. Could you use a fresh wind to blow away the musty air that's been settling in your spiritual life? Something happened in me Friday when that momentous decision in my life was reached. I tasted a freedom I hadn't in a while. And I can honestly say to you that it felt like the windows were open for the first time in the year. I saw what it was doing to my boys, that we were all together becoming addicted. And I thought, what a robbery of their vitality and youth to be wasted away just trying to have fun like a mindless drone in front of a machine when they could live or something. If we want to experience renewal, we need to recapture some of the glory of what it was to be young, to be able to believe, to dare for great things. We need to seek and destroy those idols that rob our hearts of hunger for God. And if you have neglected the Word of God, And let me remind you that your soul is starving and everything else you feed is not hitting the spot, is it? And just make 10 minutes at a time of day when you know you're at your best and give that 10 minutes to God and sit in front of His Word. And I promise you that little by little, that soul will recover its vitality. Why don't we just bow in prayer? I think I sense that my time for talking is done, but God still has things to say to us. I know that for some of us, we're very alone in the journey because the rest of your family doesn't yet understand why these things are so important. But I think the Lord wants to just begin with you this morning. He loves you. You know the sound of His voice. He's calling you to Himself because when you are in that good place with Him, He will use you to win over others. So let's begin with just us this morning, wherever you are.
Is that idealism leaked out? Are idols clogging the plumbing of your heart? Is your Bible just a shelf decoration? Or is it the Word of God? Let the Lord speak to you now and respond to Him, okay? And then we'll sing some more songs as we close. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.